Well, good morning. It's a great joy to be with you this morning and to continue our study of Counseling Youth, Gospel Hope for Teenage Hearts. And glad that you were able to join us this weekend. And uh, thank you again for your presence this morning. It's a great encouragement to see um, so many who are desiring to serve teenagers well and desiring to learn what God's Word has to say about the subject. Let me read from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, as we open our time together. This is um, at the top of your handout. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. I think this verse speaks to the tremendous potential of conversational ministry when it is done in a biblical manner. We know in the framework of our understanding of the sovereignty of God that only God can save, only God can change hearts, only God can take our teenagers from being rebellious to being those whose hearts are soft and humble before him. And yet within the framework of God's sovereignty and salvation is this precious ministry, is this precious trust that has been entrusted to us as believers in Christ. And life and death are in the power of the tongue. I think that speaks to the importance of what we're talking about this morning. Our conversations with our teenagers has the power to impart life or to bring death. And it speaks to the need that we need to become skilled in having these conversations and we need to devote ourselves to the task of learning to have these conversations well. You remember from our first session, we defined biblical counseling as conversational ministry that applies the word of God to the problems of life. So biblical counseling is helping real people with real problems using the 66 books of the written scriptures, the Bible. Biblical counseling falls under the category of dialoguing God's word or speaking God's word. It's not so much the Caruso preaching ministry of God's word, as it is the laleo or nutateo ministry of speaking God's word, placing truth in someone else's minds. And for those of us who aspire to become excellent at this ministry, the scriptures say that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about it, you and I can become an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to give life to others if we study and we are equipped to do this ministry well. And so with that weightiness of our subject in mind, uh, let me pray for us and ask for the Lord's help for our time together. Father, we do thank you that it is by your grace and your grace alone that we are saved and sanctified. And it is by your grace and your grace alone that we serve and we seek to minister to others. None of us are adequate for this task. Our trust is in Christ and his perfect work on the cross on our behalf to pay for all of our sins and his triumph and his resurrection over the grave. Father, it is because of what Jesus has done that we trust that as those who desire to be faithful to you, that you will use us and that you will use us to be servants of your word, to give life and not bring death through the conversations we have with the teenagers we love. 
So I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here in this room this morning, and I pray for all of the teenagers who are represented by the relationships in this room, and pray that you would this morning take something that is a little and make it into something that brings fruitfulness to many. We know that little is much when placed in the hands of Jesus, and we, so we place this morning into your hands, and we ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name, amen. Jay Adams has said in his work, Committed to Craftsmanship, and this is in your notes, when God has called you to a task, you must attain to the highest level that you can in pursuing it for his name's sake. That is true of counseling as well as any other calling. If God has called you to the ministry of counseling, you are not free to be mediocre. To please him, you must excel. Moreover, as in every area in which others' lives are at stake, you cannot slough off what you do as just another thing among many. You must give yourself to the work. What you do has eternal consequences. Let's just let that last statement sink in for a moment. What you and I do when we converse with our teenagers has eternal consequences. And this is why Adams refers to Proverbs 22, verse 29, which says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Brothers and sisters, I want to exhort us this morning to pursue excellence in the skill of conversational ministry. Like any skill, it can be learned. And I've seen men dedicate themselves to skills in athletics through hours of repetition and study and observation. I've seen women dedicate themselves to vocal performance. They will study diligently and learn to train their lungs and to train their vocal cords. We understand that God's grace is sufficient for us. We understand that it is all by God's grace. But God's grace empowers us to dedicated training, study, and discipline in ministry. Paul's perspective in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 was by, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I believe you're here this morning at this conference because you want to learn to do this well. For the glory of God, for the glory of Christ, for the good of your teenagers, you're here because you want to become skilled in these conversations. And so in this morning's session, we want to move from the broader category of foundations to the category of methods. This is common in biblical counseling training. We want to lay the foundations. Who is a teenager? Who is a counselor? But at some point, we need to move to the issue of methods or methodology. How do we actually have these types of life-giving conversations that bring blessing to others? And so this morning, we want to look at what is known in biblical counseling circles as the key elements of biblical counseling. None of these are new. These are not original to me. These have been rehearsed and have been repeated in the biblical counseling world. I'm not going to say anything that is new this morning, but what I am going to do is to place these elements in the context and ask us to think carefully about how we apply these elements to 
specifically our relationships with our teenagers. I think that'll be helpful for us. There are typically six key elements. Uh, Some have eight that biblical counselors are trained in. Uh, We're just gonna look at three this morning. I believe that if we take these three key elements of life-giving conversations and learn to apply them in our conversations with our teenagers, then our conversations will be helpful and they will bring life. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you were to take one of these key elements this morning and make direct application this afternoon or this weekend to how you speak to the teenager in your life, I trust you would see a difference in how that conversation goes. And so if you've been in biblical counseling training, you're most likely familiar with these elements, but I trust we will hear these truths afresh this morning and think through how it informs our ministry to teenagers. On your handout, we see that Ted Tripp writes a very helpful article entitled, Communicate with Your Teen. And he says this, teenagers' lives are full of complexity. Strong forces compete for their attention. They often feel insecure. They worry about their appearance. They spend a lot of time fixing their hair and clothes. They change their clothes three or four times before going out. They practice in front of the mirror. Is this my good smile? Is this my good side? Will people like me? Will I have lots of friends? Teenagers are unstable in the world of ideas. They are bombarded on all sides. They don't know what to think or why. Sometimes they test ideas by saying outrageous things at the dinner table. Sometimes parents get caught off guard by those outrageous comments and they overreact in response. Teens are unstable emotionally. One minute they feel wonderfully happy, the next minute they feel the world has come to an end. Again, for the third time that day, their lives are emotional roller coasters. Solid ground is hard to find. Teens face adult temptations and adult problems. A suicidal friend, sexual desires and opportunities, access to drugs and alcohol, awareness that a friend is being abused or remembering their own experiences of predation or molestation. But teens face these problems for the first time in their lives. Teens are apprehensive about the future. How will they get from today to future usefulness in life? What will I do? Who will be my friends? Will I find someone to love? Will someone love me? We need to interact with our teenagers with a great deal of wisdom. We need to use a careful hand. We need to communicate. In the years from infancy to adulthood, your authority diminishes, but your influence should increase. That's a helpful statement, isn't it? As your children get older, your authority diminishes, but your influence should increase. What happens is we feel, as our children get older, that we're losing control over their lives. In order to compensate for that lack of control, we increase the intensity in trying to manage their lives. Our words become heated, our hearts become anxious, our conversations become confrontational, accusing, not life-giving and encouraging. Proverbs 20, 12, verse 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
I wanna ask you this morning to evaluate what tone of voice do you use with the teenager in your life? So much of it is not what we say, but it's how we say it, is it not? The tone of biblical counseling ministry is one of gentleness. Galatians 6 verse one makes this clear. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you look at page two on your handouts, we learn that hard hearts are transformed by gentle words. This is the paradox or the irony of the biblical method of conversational ministry. Is you don't reach hard hearts with hard words, you reach hard hearts with soft words. Proverbs 25, verse 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. You and I cannot control our teenagers, but we can be a good and godly influence upon their lives. Do that, we must shepherd our own hearts and see where we need to grow and where we need to change. And much of what we do in biblical counseling ministry and what, what I've done in my own opportunities to counsel parents is to help parents minister to their teenagers from a position of spiritual strength, not a position of spiritual weakness. To be the one who is spiritual, to be filled with the spirit, filled with gentleness so that you can gently restore one who is going astray. We wanna be filled with the beautiful fruit of the spirit so we can be those who give hope to those we serve. All of us have failed in this, but I want you to know there's grace to, for every parent and grace for every person who has failed to minister to a teen in a spirit of gentleness. First John chapter one, verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, do not let guilt or regret paralyze you into making biblical change. Confess your sins to a faithful God. Receive God's forgiveness. Trust in the work of Jesus at the cross to pay for all of your parenting failures and all of your sins. And then move forward by the grace of God in sanctification and grow and change by the grace of God. Each of these key elements we'll look at this morning are simply a summary of basic New Testament ministry. It really is that simple. Yet somehow we fall into this idea that teenagers are a separate category of people where the simple New Testament concepts and commands do not apply. Somehow we need more than basic New Testament ministry in order to equip us to reach our teens. And yet, as we saw yesterday, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The first key element we wanna look at is the element of involvement, involvement. Involvement is the ministry of showing Christ-like compassion Involvement can be defined as a ministry of expressing Christ-like love and compassion so a relationship can be built that is marked by trust and openness. This type of ministry is highly relational. 
Counseling ministry must be marked by relational warmth and compassion. If our teenagers are people who are made in the image and likeness of God, then relational skills are vital in reaching their hearts for Jesus Christ. Relational skills are not negotiable. It's not enough to blast our teenagers with Bible verses. Colossians 3 verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, when a child is two or five years old, you can get by with mediocre people skills, a good playground, a good schedule, a good preschool, maybe access to a library of VeggieTales videos. That's all you need to get them through their day. But working with teenagers, older children requires people skills. Frankly, some parents need to learn to smile at their kids. Their faces are hardened to a perpetual frown. Even when they smile at others, their friends, and they turn to their kids and they frown with disapproval. And you wonder why teenagers don't open up and want to talk. There are some parents who need to learn to change the tone of their voice. Their voice is harsh, high-pitched, condemning. Who would want to be talked to in this way? Would you want to talk to a counselor who talks to you in that way? Would you be stirred to worship if the person doing call to worship in your own life spoke to you in a harsh, judgmental tone that condemned you from the very outset? Would that help you if you were walking in on a Sunday morning struggling with idolatry? Now I am encouraged to love Christ. Friends, we need to make the changes that by the grace of God in our tone of voice or how we even look at our kids at times. Ernie Baker asked the question, I think this is fair. What would your counselor need to be like for you to share your deepest spiritual struggle with that person? And then he says, by God's grace, resolve to be that type of counselor for others. What relational qualities would a counselor need to have for me to open up about my life? I would say it begins with compassion. This is basic New Testament ministry. It is non-negotiable. It's not an add-on to the Christian life. Paul describes his own ministry in this way in Acts 20, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And verse 36 says, when he had said these things, they knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You don't want to be the type of counselor where someone comes to see you and that person goes away and says, man, I'm so glad that's over. I never have to see that person again. You want to be the type of person who loves well so that even if the person doesn't agree with you, they know that you have their best interest at heart. This was Paul's ministry. They were sorrowful when he left. They weren't just filled with biblical information. They loved him because they knew he loved them. First Thessalonians 2 verse 7, Paul says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You break a hard heart with this type of ministry. The compassionate heart with soft words, Proverbs 
20, verse 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Isn't that the prayer of many parents? I just want my teenager to come to his senses. Well, yes, it is by God's grace that they will come to their senses, but look at the means of that described in verse 24. You and I are called not to be quarrelsome, but to correct those in opposition with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Stuart Scott describes involvement as building a Christ-like relationship with a disciple or counselee where you put yourself, a fellow sinner and sufferer, in a position to help them know and love God and love others full of grace and full of truth. And Randy Patton defined involvement as accepting the counselees as persons important to God and coming alongside in concern and love to see their problems in order to help them find biblical solutions and change for God's glory and the counselee's benefit. How do we practice this type of involvement? How do we communicate this type of concern to those whom we love? Here's the application. Involvement requires entering a person's world. Involvement requires entering a person's world. Once again, this is basic New Testament ministry. Christ entered our world and came down to us. And so as we minister to others in a Christ-like manner, we entered their world. We learned to see the world through the other person's eyes. Are we able to enter our teenager's lives and understand life from their perspective? This is the opposite of what I mentioned last night, the spirit of generational self-righteousness, this condemning attitude that comes from the previous generation towards the next generation because our generation supposedly was more righteous or better than they are. No, entering their world is seeing life through gener their generation's eyes. Parenting is more than counseling, but it is not less than counseling. There are other things you need to do as a parent. You do need to exercise authority in a wise and a godly manner. But if exercising authority is all you're doing, there's a point where the exercise of that authority becomes inefficient and ineffective. John 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Staggering truth of the gospel, that Christ came down to us. He did not tell us to work ourselves up to him. And so he is our merciful and our faithful high priest, as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 describes him. And as Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Amazing. Christ entered our world. He came down to us. He is literally able to feel the same things we feel. He 
was hungry. He was weary. He was sorrowful. He was abandoned. And so he entered our world to understand us. And so we model this type of Christ-like compassion when we entered our teenager's world and try to see life from their vantage point, not from the vantage point of a 40-year-old living in a 15-year-old body, but we look at it from the vantage point of a 15-year-old living in a 15-year-old body. At age 15, they have limited experience and wisdom. They are experiencing life as a 15-year-old. It is the expression of New Testament compassion to enter their world and to see life from their perspective. So your 15-year-old doesn't want to wear braces. Well, from a 40-year-old's perspective, that is a very minor struggle. I mean, short-term pain, long-term gain, right? Don't you see life from my perspective? I'm the one paying for your braces. I'm the one having to take you to the orthodontist. You talk about your struggles. Let's talk about my struggles. And listen, I'm not saying there's not a place for authority. At some point, you're going to wear the braces. But there is a place to ask the question. From a 15-year-old's perspective, why would I struggle with wearing braces? Philippians chapter 2 says we are to consider the interests of others more than the interests of ourselves. From the eyes of a 15-year-old, what would be the struggles in wearing braces? On page three of your handout, Paul Tripp says, in a very helpful way, as Christ entered our world and spent 33 years getting to know our experiences, we must take the time to enter the world of our teenager. That means spending as much time asking good questions and listening as it does speaking. Take time to enter the world of your teenager. I've learned in pastoral ministry and counseling ministry how disarming true try Christ-like compassion, um, it's disarming. It, it changes everything when people, they understand that you actually just care for them. Um, on the receiving end of this type of ministry, it changes everything. I remember um, meeting with a brother at my church uh, who ministered to me in a great way. I was going through a significant spiritual struggle at that time. Uh, he took me to Corner Bakery and he bought me breakfast and I don't remember what, much of what he said. I do remember that when I was sharing the struggles that I was going through, um, I remember vividly the tears in his eyes and just how much he cared for me in that moment. Do you think I was open to the counsel that he gave me once I knew that he loved me, that he was there for my interest? It's disarming. The world knows nothing of Christ-like compassion. It's all just function and transactions. And I dare say that if you bring this type of compassion into your relationship with a teenager, there will be a difference. We must learn to enter their world. So here's a further application. The way we enter a person's world is not through the objective problem the person is facing. It is through the subjective experience of that problem. This is we discussed last night, uh, Paul Tripp describes this as the entry gates. Um, before I got on the flight here, uh, my family and I were in, were in Maryland and we we're trying to catch the flight and the last minute we had everything ready and I lost my keys. And I experienced almost every 
counseling issue in the space of five minutes as I lost my keys, I had to get to the flight. Anxiety, anger, depression, conflict resolution, uh, just self-blame, guilt, doubt. So if you were coming to me at that moment and you were to say, hey, just a bunch of keys. I mean, just find, find another key or must be here somewhere. Um, I mean, that would be one way of speaking into my situation. But the, the point is that the objective problem usually isn't the real issue. The issue is the subjective experience of what a person is dealing with. They're experiencing all the common hard issues of life. Even in something, a situation like that, you're experiencing a lot of different things that are common to what many people are experiencing in different situations. And you want to learn to enter through the subjective experience, not the objective problem. I mentioned last night the illustration of the three-year-old who lost his blanket. Well, it's a $10 problem. To an adult, you just buy a new blanket. What's the big deal? Stop crying. It's a blanket. But I don't want to enter the three-year-old's world through the entry gate of the objective problem. I want to enter through the subjective experience of that three-year-old who is experiencing loss, grief, fear. You do know that when people get older, that the blankets, they still have the equivalent of the blanket, just the blankets are bigger and more expensive. They've lost something in their lives, and they're experiencing the same thing, the loss, the grief, the anxiety, you want to learn to enter through the subjective experience of the problem. So I'm not saying there isn't a place for authority of you're going to wear the braces. I'm saying that alongside that authority and that decision, it's helpful to have some good conversations. Why do you struggle with wearing braces? What makes this difficult for you? to open up and be open uh, to what your teenager would say and not shut them down from the generational perspective of, well, I got through it, so, so should you. But you're older and you have more life and more experience that the teenager does not. Learn to enter your teenager's world. In um, our biblical counseling uh, intro class, we watch a counseling reenactment surrounding a teenager named Austin. Austin is caught smoking marijuana. He's sent to a biblical counselor to help him with his problem. And there's a bad example video where the counselor bombards Austin with questions. And the questions are like this. Why did you do this? Don't you know that this is wrong? How could you do this? And Austin responds saying angrily and repeatedly, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then there's a segue to the good example of the video. The counselor asks Austin the question, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, you hear adults talking all the time. It's your turn to talk. I want to get to know you. He engages Austin. What are your favorite parts of growing up? What are your hardest parts of growing up? Do you like your brother? Austin opens up and there, there is a good conversation. 
Austin's objective problem may be smoking marijuana. And as a counselor, you may be saying, well, I've never smoked marijuana. I don't struggle with that issue, so I can't enter that world. But if you engage in Austin's experience, his subjective experience is loneliness, confusion, temptation, peer pressure, having annoying siblings, and a difficult relationship with his parents. Those are experiences that are common to all men. If you read the gospel records, Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman by speaking through the entry gate of her real life situation. He didn't just bombard her with biblical truth from the Old Testament, but he engaged in dialogue and learned to lead the Samaritan woman from her real life situation that she needed water to his identity as the Messiah. We wanna to learn to have those types of conversations. So good questions and bad questions. Uh, questions that are condemning. How could you do this? Don't you know this is wrong? Don't you know this is sin? Don't you know that you could corrupt others with this type of behavior? I mean, those are questions, but those are questions that close down conversations and close hearts, not open hearts. Good questions that express Christ-like compassion. What are you struggling with the most right now? What are you afraid of right now? What questions do you wish you could ask God what part of the situation is getting to you the most? What regrets do you struggle with? These are open-ended questions that lead to conversation. Involvement can be defined as a ministry expressing Christ-like love and compassion so that a relationship can be built marked by trust and openness. And that leads me to the second key element, which is the element of inventory, inventory. Very closely related, one is the expression of another, but inventory is the ministry of active intentional listening to a counselee's thoughts, emotions, and feelings so as to minister to that person with knowledge and understanding. Inventory is the ministry of active intentional listening. So I was at a conference, I was talking with a friend who happens to be a trained biblical counselor and I was sharing with a number of things that were going on in my life, we're eating lunch. And this went on for about 15 and 20 minutes. And then his friend who was his pastor sat down next to him, it's 20 minutes into the conversation. And my friend says to me, you know, my pastor is also a, a trained biblical counselor, would you mind if I shared with him what you just shared with me? And I said, sure. I mean, it's two for the price of one, right? So, <laughs> sure. And what he proceeded to do at that point really just astounded me because what he did was he clearly articulated the issues that I had said to him in an even clearer manner to his friend than I had said to him, which communicated to me that he had listened to everything I had been saying, he remembered everything, but not only that, he has synthesized it and processed it in a, 
in a biblical framework in a way where he could actually explain it to someone else with more clarity than I was explaining it myself. Do you think that made my heart a little more open to what these two brothers were gonna say to me? I mean, I was ready to be counseled because I had been heard. It uh, was a practice of one of my best friends in ministry um, who's, uh, who's a very dear pastor. And at the end of many conversations I've had with him, he would ask me the questions, um, have you been heard? Have you been heard? And in most cases, I would say yes, because he was a very good listener. People are ready to hear what we say when they know that we have heard what they have to say. And this is just, again, New Testament biblical ministry. Proverbs 18, verse 13. Um, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Matthew 12, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ministering to the heart is not some mystical idea. The way you get to know a person's heart is you listen to what comes out of their heart when they speak. And you learn to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Robert Jones has said, beginning counselors talk too much. Francis Schaeffer has said, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. That's not a law. You don't have to follow that as a prescription. But it is an expression of a commitment to listen well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. Amazing that God listens to us. Amazing that God listens to us even when our thoughts are so jumbled and confused at times. God never says, enough, no more prayer. I don't want to hear this anymore. Amazing that even in the many imperfect rambling prayers for many years now, God has never told me, I'm done listening. Wayne Mack has said the fact that our triune God is a good listener should powerfully motivate us to improve in this area. The three persons of the Trinity listen carefully to each other and amazingly to us. Stories told of Franklin Roosevelt, who often endured long receiving lines at the White House. He complained that no one really paid attention to what was said. And so one day during reception, he tried, decided to try an experiment. To each person who passed down the line and shook his hand, he said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <laughs> the guests responded with phrases like, marvelous, keep up the good work. It was not till the end of the line while greeting the ambassador from Bolivia that his words were actually heard. The ambassador leaned over and whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) I mean, so much of our conversation is like that, right? I mean, we're talking and we're acting like we're listening. We're not really listening. Heart check time. How good of a listener are you? 
so this is really practical. How long can you focus on someone else during a conversation before your mind tends to wander to something else? Do you interrupt? Do you ask good questions? Do you swap a person's story from one of your own? So this person is talking about being stung by a bee. Immediately you think of the time when you were stung by a bee. I'm gonna tell my own story and swap story with story instead of why don't I listen to this person's story and let the focus be on the person in the conversation. How controlled are you with your smartphone? Are you distracted by outside sights and sounds? When someone is talking to you, do you appear to be paying attention when you really are not? And how skilled are you at asking good, non-threatening questions which draw out the purposes of the heart? The, the art of asking good questions deserves a whole uh, teaching session in its own. It's a skill that needs to be studied and developed and practiced. The art of paraphrasing, clarifying, building on information that has just been revealed. The mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. People will tell you the thoughts and desires and values of their hearts if you draw them out by asking them good questions. God is our model when asking good questions. So many times in scripture where God could have just shut someone down or just given them a lecture and instead you see the Lord asking questions. Genesis 3 verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God wasn't lacking information. He wanted to draw Adam out into relationship. Questions that communicate care and concern for a person. Genesis 16 verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I mean, sometimes it's just sitting down with your teenager and asking the question, how are you doing? Is everything okay? These are questions which communicate care and concerns rather than questions that are interrogating, looking for what the teenager has done wrong. We see from the book of Jonah that questions can be used to bring conviction of sin. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now time out there because God, the Lord could have just blasted Jonah. Jonah's a prophet, Jonah should have done what is right. Jonah's there angry. He's basically throwing a temper tantrum because he wants air conditioning in the desert. And the Lord could have given a five point sermon on why you shouldn't grumble. And the Lord instead shows restraint and asks Jonah a question, do you do well? to be angry. There's grace there. There's mercy there. The Lord wants to draw Jonah out into a conversation. And you noted Jonah's response, right? Yes, I do well to be angry. And yet the Lord continues to dialogue with Jonah. You know, there's levels of, levels of force in how we engage our teenagers in conversation. You wanna be acquainted with the different levels of force that you can use in addressing someone's sin. And this is brought out in the biblical terminology. I mentioned there's laleo, there's, there's just speaking, you're just talking. 
And there's nutha teo, where you're putting truth in someone else's mind. And then there's higher levels of authority where you're reproving and you're rebuking. Sometimes people go to the story of Nathan with David, where Nathan confronts David with his sin. And Nathan says at the end, he says, you're the man. And they think that's the only level of force that I can use with other people in confronting their sin. You're the man, you're in sin, this is sin, repent. But even if you look at the story of Nathan with David, you notice how Nathan doesn't start with you're the man. How does Nathan engage David in seeking to convict David of his sin? He begins with a story. And he seeks to draw David into this story. And it is only after David is resistant, he doesn't see his sin, that he elevates the level of authority to you're the man. That's the highest level of authority. You have many different levels of authority to engage your teenager, where you need to use wisdom in what level you use. You can go to the highest level at the very beginning. This is sin and you need to repent. But if you go there and your teenager is resistant to that conversation, you have nowhere else to go. There's no higher, nowhere higher you can go. Would it not be wiser to think through, is there a lesser level of authority? Questions? Do you do well to be angry? Drawing the person out, allowing them safe space to communicate, trusting that God is at work in the person's life? And then yes, if there's resistance, you can elevate to a different level. But to go to the highest level is oftentimes unwise. Would you be able to bring your teenager to conviction of sin by telling them a story? We expect sometimes our teenagers to just get it instantly because I told them so, they should understand. We rob ourselves of the full arsenal of God that God has given us in his word that we have to minister to our teenagers. You have so many, um, so many different uh, strategies, so many different levels of force that you can use and you can employ them all. It also causes us to neglect our own experience, does it not? It's hard to see our sin. It's hard to see my own sin. I've been a believer, I don't know, for 30 years now. It's still hard to see my own sin. Uh, there'd be times I've been listening to a sermon and I'll go, oh, I finally understand that. And I'll be so excited. And I'll tell my wife on the way home, I finally understood this, like this thing that the pastor was talking about, I get it now. And she says, you've been hearing that truth over and over for the last 10 years. And I realize I have but it's so hard sometimes. The disciples, they didn't get it. They had Jesus in front of them, incarnate, speaking words of truth to them. And they still didn't understand time and time again, they had to have these truths repeated to them. And yet Christ was patient with them. And so we must learn to engage and to be patient. Paul Tripp, who um, has written Instrument in the Redeemer's Hands. Uh, we tend to respect him as a leader in the biblical counseling movement. And I've, much of my own uh, learning in biblical counseling is attributed to how the Lord has used Paul Tripp. But he tells a story of how he was convicted of his sin of anger uh, by his brother, Ted. 
And Ted took Paul on a long car ride and asked him a lot of questions. At the end of this long car ride, uh, Paul went home to his wife and he confessed his sin. Now, Ted could have gotten him in the car and said, Paul, you have an anger problem. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. He didn't do that, use those methods. Let's take a car ride. Let's talk about life. Questions, how's this going? How are you doing? Good conversation. And yet the end of the conversation, there was conviction and repentance. Friends, this is good New Testament ministry. Rick Horn has um, written the book, Ministering to Angry Children. He encourages parents of teens, make your listening big. Make it big. Impress your teenagers with your listening school skills. He says that listening is active, not passive. It is definitely a skill. It bears no resemblance at all to the listening that merely involves waiting until it is your turn to talk. Your listening needs to be a big deal all by itself. It needs to get your teen's attention. Listening to angry teens must be big, thoughtful, and purposeful. In your initial conversation with an angry teen, your job is not to fix, bring salvation, interrogate, or dictate. Your job is to listen big so that you might learn how to draw out that which is deep within. And he talks about body language with the teen. Relax. I mean, relax. God is in control. I mean, would you want to talk to a counselor who's just stressed about your life? Everything you say, they just get more stressed? <laughs> or would you want to talk to a counselor who, God's in this, God's in control. Let's talk. Enjoy. Feel no pressure to change your team because that's not your job. Allow lots of laughter. Let your demeanor communicate. You enjoy talking and being with him. Sitting at an angle gives you control over eye contact. I mean, there is just this practical thing where it just gets intense, you know, where you're just right in front of your team. You're just talking so intensely eye to eye. Just sit in an angle, allow there to be some distance there. Open stance, let your body language say you're open to hear. Lean. Uh, leaning can show interest, and it, or leaning back can show openness to hear. A voice, modulate your voice. Proverbs 27, verse 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. There are times to be loud, there's times to be soft. Um, have you ever thought about how you sound? Eye contact. Uh, use it. Don't overdo it. Um, those are just some practical things that we can think through in listening well. Hindrances to good listening. Uh, learn to ask open-ended questions instead of closed-ended questions. Do you like school? No. <laughs> well, that was a great conversation. <laughs> those are closed-ended questions. Yes or no answers. Open-ended question. What's the best part of school? What's the worst part of school? Can't be answered with a yes or no. Uh, do, you like, do you like your friend? Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about your friend? What do you guys like to do? 
Those are open-ended questions. I was in a biblical counseling training seminar um, where they made us ask a number of questions, uh, kind of reenactment of counseling. They made us ask a number of questions to the other person. And the rule was, uh, you can only ask open-ended questions, not closed-ended questions. So any question you ask that can be answered with yes or no, there'd be a person sitting next to you who had a buzzer, <laughs> and they would buzz you. And it was a terrible experience for me because I just remember getting buzzed a lot. It was, it was just question, every question that came to mind was answered with a yes or no, and I get buzzed. And it did illustrate to me that, you know, it's... It's a skill, it's a discipline to learn to ask questions that are open-ended, not closed-ended, that invite conversation in a person to speak. Let me move to key element number three, inspiration. Inspiration. Involvement is showing biblical compassion. Inventory is listening well. Inspiration is the ministry of imparting hope, is imparting hope. Friends, this is the area where many parents of teenagers are lacking. Can I just say it? I mean, we don't, oftentimes, we lack hope for our teenagers. How can they have hope for themselves? But the truth is that biblical hope is, is essential to biblical change. No one changes without hope. We need to give hope so that our teenagers will be changed. And yes, they have unique challenges and difficulties. Yes, their generation has challenges that our generation did not. Yet a biblical mindset is not just, well, let's just survive this season and get through it. A biblical mindset is that God is gonna do great and marvelous things in our children's generation, and he's gonna show himself faithful in their generation, just as he's been faithful in our generation. Be effective counselors, we must have hope for ourselves and we must have hope for our teenagers. Romans 15 verse 13, may the God of hope, I mean, what a beautiful description. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may have not a little bit of hope sprinkled on your mountain of despair. He says, by the power of the Spirit, you may abound in hope. That language of abounding is the word picture of having so much hope spilling over in your life that it just can't help but overflow and splash onto others. We have to learn to get our focus off our challenges and get our focus on our great God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. You see, but my Dan, my teenager's struggling with sin. Listen, if sin is the problem, remember that we as Christians have the solution. Christ has died for our sins. We need to look at the next generation and be filled with hope. Don't you need hope? I need hope just to make it through next week. I need hope just to make it through today. I needed hope just to make it on the plane when my keys were gone. I mean, I need hope to get through the week. All of us need hope. Our teenagers struggle with losing hope, especially when they're paired with parents who look at them with, without hope. 
How do you give hope? Be quick to identify ways that God is working. Even if those, um, be quick to identify evidences of grace, even when it is common grace, not saving grace. I mean, some parents can say, well, my, my kid isn't saved, doesn't love the Lord, and they neglect to see, identify there is common grace still, even if there's not saving grace yet. Your son may not love Christ, but he has a job and he does a good job. Identify that. Affirm that. Uh, your daughter may not be saved, but she works hard. She gets good grades in school. She's kind. She's friendly to others. Identify the common grace that is in your child's life. Even common grace may be a basis for affirmation and be quick to give that ministry of verbal affirmation. It's not just enough to feel it in our hearts. We do have to express it in our words. Philippians 1 verse 3, Paul said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I think that Paul must have just learned to keep a short memory of failures and to keep a long memory of the good things, the sweet things in his fellowship with the church. Even how he affirmed his disciple Timothy, and we know Timothy wasn't perfect. We know Timothy had his struggles. He said, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith a fair that, faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Biblical hope anticipates good in the future. Your teenager's struggling with school. You can say, study harder, do better. B's and C's are not acceptable in our household. I mean, you can go down that route, or you could say, I'm praying for you. God will be faithful. Just you wait. God is going to do good to you through this. See an overview there of the promises of God? You can take the promises of God. Uh, learn to study the promises of God. They are, um, as Ryle said, uh, vast and inexhaustible. Learn to utilize the promises of God. Don't just learn to give imperatives. Learn to give indicatives. This is what Christ has done for you. And learn to give promises. This is what Christ will do for you. He'll be faithful. And they use that to make a sandwich where you couch the imperatives, the commands of God between the indicatives and the promises of God in a way that gives both exhortation and gives hope. Some thoughts on leading a teenager to repentance. Um, we talked about utilizing levels of force. Um, understand that you can be wrong. 1 Samuel 1 verse 12 talks about Hannah praying for the Lord and Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. And Eli took her to be a drunken woman. He got it wrong. We can get it wrong. Clothe yourself with humility Learn to say, I'm not God. I could be wrong. 
Learn to focus on specific concrete actions that have been observed rather than broad sweeping character generalizations. I notice on Wednesday when you talked to your sister, you seemed irritated. Is a better conversation than you are a mean and irritable person around the house. Focus on what is specific and concrete instead of broad brushing and making character conclusions. Um, learn to deal with resistance. Utilize, utilize levels of force and learn that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Friends, these are just three of the key elements. Inventory, inspiration, involvement. Here's a challenge for you. Ask your, one of your family members, and um, if you are so bold, ask your teenager, how am I doing in these areas? And when they tell you, don't fight back. Learn to be open. How can I improve in this area? And have the initial conversation that sometimes is the disarming conversation that you're willing to open up yourself in that way. And you provide a context where others can open up as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word is practical. Uh, we thank you that your word uh, not only gives us hope and encouragement in the great themes of scripture, but also gives us practical things that we can work on to, to grow and to change. And I pray that the teaching that we've heard from your word this morning would help us to become better counselors. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Help us to engage in life-giving conversations with those whom we love. We trust this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.